Hey everyone, welcome back to Money on a Mission. Today is episode 16, the last episode of the season, and we get to look back and review everything that we've covered in season one. Let's get started. With all the challenges money brings, how can we manage our finances in a way that aligns with our values? To answer this question, I've looked to mentors, books, and most importantly, the Bible. Join me as we seek to glorify God and love others in the way we manage our finances. This is Money on a Mission. Today should be a fun episode when we get to look back and review everything that we've learned from episode one all the way up through episode 15, everything that the Bible has to say about money. There's a lot to cover, so let's get right into it. We started with an introduction. Throughout my life, there were really two separate areas of education. The Christian education, where I went to church, was a part of Bible studies, did my Bible reading, and the financial education. Conversations with my dad, the financial advisor, economics and finance classes in high school and college, and my own personal education on diving into finances and investing. And I had a real passion in both of these areas, but never blended them together. There was some alignment, some conflict, but I never really addressed it and put the two into alignment with each other. Until a couple of years ago when I went on a retreat that I talked about in episode one. On that retreat with a bunch of Christian men, we covered verses like Proverbs 3, 9, which says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty. And Genesis 12, 2, when God said to Abraham, I will bless you so that you may be a blessing. I got to have these discussions and see mentors and examples who had applied these things to their finances in a biblical way. And it was after that retreat that I decided I needed to learn more about what the Bible says about money. So, even though I'd been reading the Bible my whole life, even read it cover to cover twice before, I decided to read it start to finish and highlight every verse about money. After doing that, I took all those verses and organized them into each lesson that I found that the Bible teaches on money. It turned out to be such an amazing experience that I knew I had to share it. And that's when the idea for the podcast began. Now, here we are, 16 episodes later, at the end of all those lessons. So let's take a look back and review what we've covered. The first half of the content was all about the proper understanding of money. We started with a basic definition. Money is a means of exchanging perceived value, which means it can be exchanged for things that are valuable, but in and of itself is worthless. And we found this to ring true all over the Bible. There are, however, lots of things that money can do. Before we dive into those, we covered a few things that money can't do, just to put it in its proper place. First, we cannot take money with us when we die. Psalm 49, 16 and 17 says, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. Second, money cannot save us from judgment. Zephaniah 1.18 says, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. And third, money cannot buy anything spiritual, only material. In Acts chapter 8, Simon saw the apostles performing miracles and offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. So there's three things that money cannot do. And that leads us to some conclusions that we find in Psalms and Ecclesiastes. First, money is a worthless idol. Psalm 135, 15-18 says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. We also find that the Bible says money is vanity. 
It's for that reason that Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 8 and 11, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. Then later in Ecclesiastes 5, 10, he writes, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. So if we can't take money with us, it can't save us from judgment, it can't buy anything spiritual, it's worthless and idle and vanity, how do we respond to that? First, if you don't have any money, then don't worry. The best things in life can be attained without money. Luke 12, 15 says, For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. On the other hand, if you do have a lot of money, remember that it isn't actually worth anything. It can be easy to fall into the temptation of loving the money itself or watching the number in a bank account. But we need to put it in its proper place so that we can use it on a mission and honor the Lord in how we manage it. After learning that, we addressed how we should orient our hearts towards money. And that led us into some of the most commonly referenced verses on money. Verses like Matthew 19, 23, and 24. Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So if money is simply vanity, then why is it hard for a rich man to enter heaven? Because 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from their faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This doesn't say that the money itself is evil, but the love of money. So, why is the love of money evil? Because it chokes out the word. Mark 4 contains a parable of the seed sower, and some seeds land among the thorns. Verse 18 and 19 say, These are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Which leads to the next question, how does money choke out the word? Because you can't serve two masters. It leads to distraction and takes away from serving God. Luke 16, 13 says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So, the love of money makes money your master and chokes out truth, which leads to evil. And that's why it's difficult for a rich man to enter heaven. Not because of the money itself, but because the love of money, which becomes the master, which chokes out the truth in his heart. It's all about our hearts. So what should we do then? The disciples asked Jesus the same question, how can anyone enter heaven? And he responded by saying, because all things are possible with God. It's about giving our hearts to God and making God our master and not letting money get in the way of that. So Psalm 62:10 says, if riches increase, set not your heart on them. Because Matthew 6, 19 through 21 say, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Set our hearts on God, not on money. And that leads us right into the next topic. Ten things that the Bible says are more valuable than money. We should prioritize each of these things above our wealth, and we should set our hearts on pursuing these things more than we should set our minds on pursuing money. Number one, righteousness. Proverbs eleven twenty eight. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Number two, integrity. Proverbs 28.6. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. Number three, humility. Proverbs 16.19. It is better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Number four, wisdom. 
Proverbs 16, 16. How much better to get wisdom than gold, to get understanding, is to be chosen rather than silver. Number five, contentment. Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Number six, life itself. Jeremiah 41, 8. Do not put us to death, for we have stores of wheat, barley, oil, and honey hidden in the fields. Number seven, faith. James 2, 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Number eight, salvation. Mark 8.36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Number nine, God's word. Psalm 119.72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. And number 10, God himself. Jeremiah 9.23 and 24. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness on the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. We should prioritize these things above money. Seek them first rather than seeking money. And if we ever find ourselves in a position where there's conflict between them, choose these over money. Righteousness, integrity, humility, wisdom, contentment, life, faith, salvation, God's word, and God himself. From there, we moved on to the concept of stewardship versus ownership. We defined ownership as exclusive rights, control, or possession of something but stewardship as responsible supervision, planning, and management of something entrusted to our care. And the Bible makes it very clear that we are stewards, not owners. First off, we see that God is the one who gives and the one who takes away. 1 Samuel 2.7 says, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. So it's up to God to make that decision, not up to us. We also see that all money, along with all things, belong to God. John 3.2 says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So everything that we have, including our money, is from God and belongs to God. So in response to this, we need to do three things. First, give God all the credit. Jeremiah 9.23 and 24 say, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Don't boast in our money. Give the credit to God and boast in him. Second, we need to release our hold on money. Give up the title of ownership in exchange for the title of stewardship. It isn't ours. It belongs to God. He has trusted us to manage it. And then third, we need to manage it really well. Luke twelve forty two, And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager? whom his master will set over his household, to give him their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant, whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. We need to be that faithful servant, who God will find honoring him in the ways we manage his money and his possessions. From there, with money in its proper place, our hearts properly oriented, and our role established as stewards, we moved on to see God's amazing blessing and provision. This is an incredible message, but can only be received once that proper foundation is set. With it in place, we then looked at how amazing God's provision is. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And Matthew 7, 11 says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, 
how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? He has plans for welfare. He wants to give us good gifts. But that doesn't just come indiscriminately. He asks a few things from us first. First, he asks that we follow his commandments. Deuteronomy 15, 4 and 5 say, The Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. Deuteronomy 29.9 says, Therefore, keep the word of his covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. And 1 Chronicles 22.13 says, Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the rules that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. Those three verses have an amazing blessing. I will bless you. I will give you an inheritance. You will prosper. But they all contain a commandment first, if you strictly obey the voice of the Lord, if you follow the commandments that I command you today. So before the blessing, there is obedience. And then we also see that after the blessing, there is honor for the Lord with those finances. We already mentioned it, but Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. So we obey him before the blessing, and then after receiving, we honor him with the blessing. This is such a beautiful cycle of honoring, receiving, and honoring again, that we can give all we have to the Lord, and he can trust us to manage what is his, that we can in turn use it to glorify him even more. Remember, this is not the prosperity gospel. It's not a checklist of things to do in order to get more money. Instead, we read these verses and think everything in the world is the Lord's and I want to honor him and use it to do his will. So I'll follow his commandments whether he blesses me or not. And then if he does, I'll use it to honor him even more. The prosperity gospel teaches people to use the gospel for the sake of prosperity, but the Bible teaches us to use prosperity for the sake of the gospel. So with a proper understanding of money, the incredible blessings of the Lord, then what should we do with the money that God trusts us to manage? The short answer is, money should be used on a mission, a mission for him and a mission for good. Here are some of the things that the Bible says money can and should be used for. First, to provide food. Isaiah 23:18, speaking about the city of Tyre, says, Her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. It will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. Next, to provide security. Proverbs 10:15 says, A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. A strong city is where people find protection, and in some ways money can give us the same type of security, to protect us from physical or financial loss and give us a backstop in terms of any hardship. Third, it can provide relationships. Proverbs 19.4 says, Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friends. And Proverbs 14.20 says, The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Now, the people who are attracted to you only for your money are probably not the people who you will become best friends with, but money just might open doors or provide connections and relationships that further God's mission for you. And fourth, to provide enjoyment. Ecclesiastes 7.14 says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And 1 Timothy 4.4 says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So again, receive and be joyful. Just make sure to always have the right heart when receiving. This verse says nothing is to be rejected as long as it is received with thanksgiving. One more verse on this that I love is Ecclesiastes 5.19 and 20. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. 
for he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So with the money God has trusted you to manage, be joyful and receive with thanksgiving, but always remain so focused on God that your heart is filled with his joy and not with anything false or provided by the money. In all of these examples, there was one thing in common. The money was used for a purpose. And one of the best examples of using money for a purpose is in the book of Haggai, when God calls the people of Israel to build his temple. They had left the Lord's house in ruin because they were so focused on their own desires with their money. Haggai 1, 8, and 9 say, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruin, while each of you busies himself with his own house. They were too focused on their own possessions that they had missed out on God's mission, and as a result, all their work and toil came up empty. But after hearing these words of the prophet Haggai and receiving the mission from God to build his temple, they listened and obeyed. Haggai 1.12 and 14 say, They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And then, after obeying and putting their money on a mission, they were blessed and built him an incredible house, an incredible temple. Haggai 2 summarizes it well. Verses 15 and 16 say, Before the stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. And when one came to a wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. Then, after they listened and obeyed the Lord and put their resources towards the mission, verses 18 and 19 say, Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranates, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on I will bless you. Man, what a difference. When they put their money on a mission, they went from toiling and coming up empty to receiving the full measure of God's blessing. So when we put our money on a mission, we should follow the example of Israel set in Haggai. Listen to the Lord, obey his voice, and trust that God will bless the mission he puts you on. Know that that money belongs to God and use it to further the mission even more. And with that, we concluded all that the Bible had to say about the proper understanding and application of money. Next, we got to move on to the actionable steps in managing and allocating that money. So let's get right into it. Step one, working and earning. The Bible tells us both why and how we should work. As for why, we do not work to make a name for ourselves or to chase after wealth. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5 say, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle towards heaven. Instead, we work to provide for our family, provide for others, and provide value to your community. 1 Timothy 5, 8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So we work and earn to provide for our family. Most importantly, though, we work to glorify God. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 say, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. We work to honor him. Then, as for how we should work, the Bible teaches us four things. First, we should enjoy our work. Ecclesiastes 2.24 There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Second, we should work hard. Proverbs 28.19 says, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. 
Third, we should be patient. Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. And lastly, when we work, we should know that our success comes only from God. Proverbs 16.3 says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. It's when we enjoy our work, work hard, be patient, and put our trust in God that he can bless it and our plans will be established. Next, the Bible tells us a couple things about the types of work that we should do. First, our work should be righteous. Proverbs 11.18 says, The wicked earn deceptive wages, but one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. Next, our work should be honest. Proverbs 11.1, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Third, we should provide value as opposed to extorting money. Luke 3.14 says, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. And then finally, in our work, we should honor the Sabbath and rest from our work one day a week. Exodus 34, 21 says, Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. On the Sabbath, you should carve out time for God and family, get some rest, and fast from your work to ensure that God gets the glory for your success. And then for our last lesson on work, we looked at what the Bible said about treating employees. If you hire, manage, or oversee people, hire good people, pay them a fair wage, pay them on time, and love them like Jesus does. And that wraps up working and earning. Now, we go on to what we should do with that money once we earn it. And step one is give. The Bible gives us four reasons why we should give and four principles of how we should give. As for why, the first reason is because God tells us to. We find this in the Old Testament, the Gospel, and the Epistles of the New Testament. Deuteronomy 16.17 says, Every man shall give as he is able. And Matthew 5.42 say, give to the one who begs from you. These are not suggestions. These are commands from God. You shall give. And that's reason enough. But there are still three more. Second is it's good and right to give. Psalm 37.21 says, the righteous is generous and gives. And Proverbs 21.26 says, the righteous gives and does not hold back. The third reason is that failing to give is wrong. Malachi 3.8 says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and in your contributions. Failing to give robs God of what's rightfully his. And the fourth reason we should give is that we will receive a blessing in return. Malachi 3.10 says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. With those four reasons, we should be eager to give. God tells us to, it's good and right, failing to do so is wrong, and God even promises a blessing in return. With that in mind, then, how should we give? First, we should give generously and freely. 2 Corinthians 9-7 says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Second, we should give our first and our best. Exodus 23-19 says, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. That's why giving is step number one in managing money, before saving, before spending, before investing, because the Bible says we should bring it first. Okay, the third way in which we should give is we should give a tithe or 10%. Jacob says in Genesis 28:22, And of all you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. And then this is echoed in Leviticus and Chronicles and seen in many other examples throughout the Bible. A tenth or 10% or a tithe is the number that God provides for us. The fourth way in which we should give is to give to the poor, the fatherless, the widow, the church, and your brother in need. Deuteronomy 26.13 says, 
Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portions out of my house, and moreover, I have given to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your command that you commanded me. So there's step one. First and most important step in managing your money is give. The next step, number two, is save. Similar to giving, the Bible gives us four reasons why and four principles of how. As for why, first, the Bible tells us that it's wise. Proverbs 21.20 says, Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. Second, we save to prepare for future need. Genesis 41.34-36 say, And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming, and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. The third reason we save is to provide an inheritance for our children. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. We'll come back to inheritance in a minute, but for now, that's reason number three to save. Reason number four is it helps us to discipline our spending. If we spend all that we earn, then we're not exercising any self-control or discipline. And these are qualities that honor God and that the Bible says are a fruit of the Spirit. By saving, we teach ourselves to spend less than we earn. We live within our means and we cultivate that self-control. So there's our four reasons why. Next, how should we save? First, we should save before we spend. 1 Corinthians 16.2 says, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, so as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Our saving should be second only to giving, before any spending. Alright, the second way that we should save is little by little. Proverbs 13.11 says, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase. It's about regular and disciplined saving, not waiting for a big opportunity to save in one large chunk. The third way in which we should save is by following the example of Joseph in Genesis and save one-fifth or 20%. This is not a commandment the way that giving 10% is a command, but it is a powerful example and it works out really well for Egypt. When Joseph recommends that Pharaoh save during the years of plenty to provide for the years of famine, he says, Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And that saving not only provided for Egypt, but for the land all around, that the entire region was saved because of it. Okay, finally and most importantly, we should save in obedience to God. If he calls you to follow the example of Joseph, then save 20%. If he calls you to pour all your money you earn into the mission he has you on now and not save, then do it. But if he calls you to save more than that to prepare for a future mission, then do that as well. Just make sure that your decision on saving is based on his calling for your life, not on your own desires to spend now or accumulate wealth. Ultimately, it's up to him and in your prayer and relationship with him and how he leads you to what to do with that money he's trusted you with. Save as you feel led by the Lord. Okay, we said we'd come back to it because we also talked in episode on saving about inheritance. When saving for and passing on an inheritance, the first and most important lesson is both parents and children must have a righteous foundation and understanding of money before the passing or receiving of inheritance. Both parents and children need to fully understand that all the money belongs to God. Second, the Bible also told us that children must live righteously after receiving an inheritance. Even if you receive a large sum of money for inheritance, you still need to obey God in what he asks you to do with that money. And you still need to trust in him and rely on him completely in every area of your life. 
So with those two things established, we then looked at some of the specifics of how biblical inheritance was passed. First, biblical inheritance was not evenly distributed. It could vary by birthright with the firstborn receiving more or by family size with larger tribes receiving more than smaller tribes. Numbers 26.52 says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Among these the land shall be divided for an inheritance according to the number of names. The large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe a small inheritance. Regardless of the specifics of how you could apply that today, this shows us that inheritance doesn't necessarily have to be the cut-and-dry even distribution that is so common today. Instead, it can be tailored to the needs of the family. Second, an inheritance in the Bible could have involved requests. Remember the three tribes who asked Moses for their portion of the promised land on the east side of the Jordan. They found a piece of the land that they wanted for their own, so they asked and Moses granted them that request. Moses was blessed by it because his people got what they wanted, and the people were blessed by it because they ended up where they wanted to settle. The same thing can be done today with a family inheritance. It can be divided up in a way that most blesses the family. Maybe one child would be most blessed by receiving the family property, and another by receiving the family business. Maybe they're of equal value, maybe they're not. But either way, having that conversation and determining how the inheritance can most bless each member of the family will lead to the best use of that money. In all of this, the key takeaway is that the passing of an inheritance should not be a contentious and mathematical dividing of family assets. Instead, it should be based on a biblical understanding of money and done through loving communication. Alright, with that we wrapped up saving an inheritance and next moved on to debt. Debt is something that's not very well understood in our society, and even those who look from a Christian perspective often miss the point. So let's look at what the Bible says. First, debt puts you at the mercy of the lender. Proverbs 22.7 says, The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. If you owe money, then you don't have the freedom to use that money in the way God calls you to. Instead, you're a slave to that payment to the lender, and you have traded your freedom for that indebtedness. Second, debt limits your options. Remember the passage in Nehemiah 5, when a famine strikes Israel and three families handle it in three different ways based on their financial situation. The first family has savings available and covers their expenses from those savings. The second takes on debt to pay for food and ensures their survival. So these first two had options. But the third already had debt and they had no option left but to sell themselves into slavery. We would want to be like those first two families that had a means of providing when they fell into need. We do not want to be like that third family that was already so shackled by debt that when a need came up, they had no option left. So with those two things in mind, it's better to not have any debt at all. Romans 13.8 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. This is clearly the ideal situation. But if you end up in a situation like the second family in Nehemiah 5 who used debt to provide for that time of need, then what should you consider when taking it on? First, consider the cost. Remember, it makes you a slave to the lender and takes away your options, so it needs to be worth that trade-off. Second, do not put up security for a neighbor. This is a unique case, but it's mentioned a lot in the Bible. This does not mean taking out a loan for yourself, but co-signing a loan or providing collateral for someone else's debt. Then, if they are unable to pay, you could lose all that you have because of it. And finally, if you take on any debt, pay it off. Psalm 37.21 says, The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. Don't be wicked. Pay back what you owe. How you pay off debt or how much of your paycheck you use towards that debt can vary based on your situation, but here's one technique. Give 10%, save 10%, and pay off debt with 20%. Then live off the remaining 60. 
Once it's paid off, continue to give 10%, but then up your savings to 20% and live off the 70%. This is just a technique, not specifically found in the Bible, but I think is a good balance of saving to prepare for future need while eliminating the debt and builds in a reward for finishing your debt payments when you get to up your living off 60 to 70. Ultimately though, listen to the Lord and how he leads you in glorifying him with your finances and pay it off in whatever way you can, as quick as you can, that still allows you to save and be prepared for future need. All right, after debt, the next thing that we covered was taxes. This can be a huge factor in both personal and business expenses. But whenever taxes are addressed in the Bible, it's rather nonchalant. When the Pharisees ask Jesus about taxes, he simply says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. It seems like a short and easy answer, but Romans 13 clarifies why. Verse 1 says, Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And then verse 6 says, For because of this, you also pay taxes. So regardless of how you feel about your government or the way that they're using the money you pay in taxes, we still should respect the authority and trust that God works all things together for good. So, don't make taxes a controversial issue for you. Pay what the law asks you to pay and move on. All right, after that, we finally got to spending. After earning, giving, and saving, spending is an area where we have a big responsibility to manage God's money well. So how do we do that? First, know the condition of your finances. Proverbs 27:23 says, "Know well the condition of your flock." In order to manage money well, we need to know how much we make, how much we spend, how much we have, and how much we owe. Second, plan out your expenses. Luke 14:28 says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? If we spend freely without a plan or design, we'll never utilize it in the best way. We need a plan in order to accomplish God's mission with the money he's trusted us with. So, just like we talked about in episode 13, that means having a budget. But that doesn't have to be a scary or overwhelming thing. When you make a budget, start with where you are. Track your expenses for a while just to see how you spend naturally. Then sit down and analyze those patterns. If there are areas where you want to spend less, limit that category. If there are areas where you want to spend more, add to that category. Then make the categories work for you. If you want a category for every possible expense, add it. If you just want a few big ones, then go for that as well and keep it simple. As long as it helps you to be intentional with your spending and know where that money is going. Once you've done that, spend in an honorable way. Don't buy what you don't need. Proverbs 13.7 says, One pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. So avoid spending money on things that are sinful or useless. Spending can really draw us in with temptation, pride, and comparison, but don't give in to that. Buy what you need, not what will make you look good or compare well with others. With that, if you don't buy what you don't need, then do buy what you do need. Lamentations 5.4 says, We must pay for the water we drink, and the wood we get must be bought. This points out the obvious truth. Things cost money. Once you've given and saved and managed your budget, then use it to live your life. It's good and right to spend money on your necessities and even on things that bring joy, as long as it's all done with your heart in the right place and set on God and not on the money or the stuff. When you buy, pay what it's worth, be careful not to overpay and waste money, but also be careful not to underpay because your spending likely provides for someone else's earning. In all your buying and selling, honor the Lord, be righteous, and love one another. And with that, we wrapped up spending and moved on to the last topic, investing. The Bible gives us three reasons why we should invest. Reason number one is to be faithful with what God has trusted us to manage. 
Remember Matthew 25, when Jesus tells the parable of the servant who said, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Reason number two is to take root downward and produce fruit upward. Isaiah 37, 30, and 31 say, This year you shall eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from that. Then in the third year you shall sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. Then reason number three we should invest is to enable us to be generous and put God's money on a mission. Proverbs 28.8 says, Whoever multiplies his wealth by interest and profit gathers it for him who is generous to the poor. So there are three reasons why. Now for how to invest. First, we should invest in the life of others and in the kingdom of God first and foremost. Then when we invest our money, follow these steps. Give and save first, then invest from your savings. As for what to invest in, buy assets that you, one, understand. Proverbs 27, 23, know well the condition of your flock. Buy assets that, two, align with your values. Proverbs 16, 8, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Buy assets that, three, produce a good return. Matthew 25, you delivered to me five talents and I have made five talents more. And finally, buy assets that, four, diversify your portfolio. Ecclesiastes 11.2, invest in seven ventures. Yes, in eight, you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. Above all, invest in things that are honoring to God. Then, once you've invested, be patient, know that your money belongs to him and the returns belong to him as well. So that wrapped up investing. After all that, we had one final episode covering the unique case of earning an income from other people's giving. That applied to pastors, missionaries, clergy, deacons, and even some nonprofit employees. And from what the Bible says about it, we basically came to a simple conclusion. As long as we start from the same foundation of biblical understanding of money, then all the steps apply in the same way. First, it's good and right for pastors and missionaries to earn a living from their work. Remember 1 Corinthians 9.14, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Then, from that income, take the same steps that we've just covered. Still give a tithe or 10%, still save as you feel led by God, still spend wisely, avoid buying things you don't need, but do buy things that you do need. And that last point is something we actually spent a little bit talking about. Pastors and missionaries often feel a pressure or a judgment from their supporters to use every penny on the mission and not use any on supporting their family. Remember, there are things that are perfectly good and right to spend money on. So, pastors and missionaries, if your family needs food, supplies, even a new couch or a vacation, then use the money that you've been trusted to manage to buy those things if it's right. Spend as the Lord leads you and take care of your family. Donors and supporters, give to people you trust and who will use that money on a mission. But then, trust them to manage it. If you see that missionary family post a picture of their new couch or their beach vacation, then celebrate with them, because that's a good thing. And with that, we wrapped up all 15 episodes. And that completes Season 1 of Money on a Mission. Guys, this has been such a blessing and so much fun to produce. Thank you, thank you for being a part of it. I hope that I've done a good job of communicating what the Bible says. I know there's probably times where my own opinion snuck in, but I've really tried to keep it grounded in scripture and in the word of God. So I pray that's come through and I pray it's been a blessing to you. As for what's next, for you as a listener, go and apply this stuff. Really analyze your view of money. Start giving, start saving, start tracking your expenses. Use your money on a mission. Know that it's God's and put it to work. 
And if anything in today's episode sparked a question or reminded you of something you learned that you'd like to go refresh, go back and re-listen to the episode on that topic. These episodes will all stay online, so you can go back and listen as much as you want. And because they're staying online, share it with somebody. They're going to be there for them as well. I've asked in every episode, but today especially, in the summary of everything that we've covered, if you've been at all blessed by this, then please share it with somebody else, because I hope that they could be blessed by it too. As for what's next with Money on a Mission, it really depends how the Lord leads, and it depends what would bless you most. If you'd like more of the podcast, then I'll add a season two. If you'd like a course or a book study so that you can dive in with your church or your small group, then I could look into making that and getting it out to you as well. So let me know. I've had a few people reach out and ask questions, and it's been great to talk with you. So please don't hesitate to send me a direct message on Instagram or email me at moneyonamissionpodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to hear what you learned from this. I'd love to hear what blessed you and what I could do in the future to help bless you even more. With that, I hope and I pray that you've been blessed through this podcast, and I can't wait to see you again soon. Until then, glorify God, love others, and always manage your money on a mission. 